You know, we live in a world where the most celebrated virtue is independence. And the most important thing you can be is whatever you want to be. And no one had ever better dare tell you otherwise. We as a, as a culture and as a society reject any kind of institutional authority, reject any kind of moral code, reject any kind of fixed laws, and what really matters at the end of the day is, did I do what was right in my own eyes? I mean, how many times have you heard, be true to yourself? It's where we live. It's in the air that everyone in this room breathes, and there's no getting around it or getting away from it. We don't respect authority, we don't respect parents, we don't respect anything, and any respect that we do offer only continues so long as we agree with that authority. But when disagreement arises, all submission, all community, all solidarity is gone. This is not an indictment of any individual or of any group of people in particular, because all of us were raised in this anti-authoritarian world. Almost all of us, for as long as we have lived, we have been taught by examples that we've seen, uh, taught in, in the media that we consume, taught by many endless influences. Question authority. Question the norms. Question the standards. And not only to question them, but at the earliest inconvenience, at the moment they begin to rub up against what I want to be, reject them outright. Yeah, it's a, it, it, sometimes there's a tendency to think, well, yeah, that happens outside of me, but not to me. I'm immune to all of this. No one is immune to all of this. It, because it doesn't start in the society around us and then filter down. It starts in the heart and comes out. And far from this natural, rebellious attitude that infects us all, far from that being kept in check today, this I am the master of my own destiny attitude is watered and nurtured and cherished. So it's in there. It is. And you have to fight against it and hold it in check because it is sin. And it wants to annihilate your joy and annihilate your faith and destroy your church and your family. Nothing good comes from rejecting what God has arranged. Now the reason I bring this up in a sermon that is on church membership is because this self-exalting, early rebellious attitude that oozes from the sinful heart and is encouraged by a sinful world, it's embraced without restraint, and it is a death sentence to any kind of community or cohesion. You cannot have healthy, structured relationships without this sinful inclination being held at bay. Because the church, especially, the church requires everyone 
to be content to fulfill their God-given role in order to function effectively and appropriately. So there is a, a disclaimer at the beginning of this sermon to examine your own heart on the issue and see if any hindrances you face might start there. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at a few different passages. We'll be starting, or to set the, the tone for the rest of the sermon, I want to read Romans 12, 4 and 5. Romans chapter 12. Sixth book in the New Testament, 12th chapter, verses 4 and verse 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Uh, let's pray. Lord, thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your church. I pray that You would be exalted today. That Your name would be great among us and that the, the view of the church, which is not a, a man-made thing, Lord, You ordained it. You instituted it. You put it here in this world to accomplish all the things You have for it to do. It comes from You and it is for You. And Lord, I pray that we would have an appropriate respect and love for Your church. Not a building, but a people. Lord, help us to cherish the blessing and the gift You have given us in joining us in community together. I pray anyone who is hesitant on these things, that this morning would be a morning of clarity for them, and that they would see the importance of being part of a local body of believers. Amen. Well, what inevitably comes up in any conversation about church membership is why church membership at all. Isn't it enough just to show up on Sundays, show up on a few other meetings? Isn't it enough to affirm that I'm part of the church? And that be that. Why do we need something like a formal church membership? Why pick up a membership application that's out on the table, fill it out, ask the questions, meet with the elder? Why go through all of that, especially when you don't really see anything that looks like that in the Scriptures? That's always the question that comes up. The answer, there's two of them. One... The reason why you don't see it in the Scriptures is because it's implicit. It is implied. So even though you don't see official church membership in the same way you do in Christ Community Church, nevertheless, it is there just in a different form. You see, uh, baptism in the ancient uh, church, in the early church, baptism was your official joining of the church. And since there was only one church per town or village or city established by an apostle, that was where you joined. There weren't options. Now, you didn't have the church of Peter on Main Street and the, the church of Paul a few blocks over. You didn't have the Baptists on one corner, Methodists across the street, and the Anglicans between the two. You had one option. 
And so there was no need for any kind of officially joining a local body of believers. Every baptism was an official joining of a local body of believers. And you were either a member of the church or you were not. And that way it was a lot simpler. And so there was an official membership. Even in the early church, it just looked different than it is today. And in case you think, well, maybe that's adding to Scripture by having an official written-on-paper church membership... Maybe you think we're doing something that we shouldn't do because it's not expressly commanded in Scripture. Well, the second answer is there are a lot of things that we do that are not expressly commanded in Scripture but are nevertheless necessary for carrying out the work of the church. Consider having our own building. In the Bible, it's not required, but circumstances have made it imperative for carrying out the work of the church. It's not commanded, but it's tremendously beneficial. And you can add to that Sunday school programs, youth programs, nursery, having a charitable status, having a potluck, having a, a statement of faith clearly defined, doing fundraisers, doing outreaches, and a whole host of other things that are not expressly required in Scripture, but are beneficial and often necessary in carrying out the mission of the church. And having a formal church membership is one of those things. So let me give you six ways that this is true. Right? So six reasons why we have a membership and why you should join a church. Number one, membership makes church discipline possible. It makes church discipline possible. In Matthew 18, you can turn to Matthew 18. But in Matthew 18, the church is given instructions on how to handle sin amongst believers. Right? Either someone's wronged somebody else or they're, they're breaking a command that God requires. Well, what do you do? What do you do when sin begins to threaten the integrity of the church or the relationship between believers or the spiritual survivor, survival of the one who is in sin? Well, the Bible tells us how to deal with these things. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three Witnesses, And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or as a tax collector. So there are stages here of dealing with sin, four of them. One, private conversation between the two people involved. Somebody does something to you, they hurt you, or you hurt them. You go to them, you forgive each other, you make it right, it's done. It's where 90, probably 95, maybe 98% of conflict between believers gets resolved at the personal, private level. And, and this is just a testimony to the Lord's care for His people. Is in, in every one of these stages, what you see, it's, it's not like, okay, somebody's done something wrong now. Make it public before everyone and embarrass them. The Lord cares for His people. There are few things worse than having your dirty laundry aired before everyone. 
And the Lord actually in Matthew 18 makes provision to protect people from that. It only happens in the most dire of circumstances and it only happens for the good of the person who won't repent. It's, it's only the minimum amount of people and pressure necessary to bring about restoration and reconciliation and repentance. So, one-on-one -on -one conversation. This is where this usually is handled, but not always. Sometimes there's a disagreement. And so the second stage is taking someone with you. Normally that's a, an elder or leader of the church that you're a part of, or uh, someone who is a leader of the church that they are a part of. And so you begin to see how knowing what church you're a part of helps to clarify who you go to if a dispute continues. And it's, this is important uh, to have a second witness there. So it puts pressure on the other person. They'll see that this concern you have is legitimate. You didn't confront them just because you were upset. This is not just your grinding an axe and swinging it at them. No, there's something possibly very serious going on here. Or maybe you confront somebody about their sin. You go to the church, you bring someone along. They come along and they say, hey, yeah, maybe, maybe they did this, but you, that's not really even wrong. Maybe you're just being legalistic or overzealous and you need someone to come along and, and put the brakes on you. So you take a witness along. But if that doesn't work, it's not resolved here, two or three witnesses, it's to be taken before the church. And how are you going to do that with a clear, without a clearly defined body of believers? Who are you going to bring it before? Everyone who's here on a Sunday morning? Are you going to bring it to the people who remain after the children go to Sunday school? Do you just call a special meeting and whoever comes, comes? If someone shows up, so the day of the meeting comes, someone shows up on this day of, of a special sensitive meeting and they say, I'm a Christian, have been for 10 years. Do you let them in and give them a say? I mean, they're part of the... The church, they're part of the universal body of, of Christ, that's what they say, and even if they are, do you want them involved? How do you know to distinguish who this matter's brought before? And so that's stage three, bring it before the church. And stage four, if he still will not listen, put him out. Let him know that he is not considered a part of the body of Christ because of his refusal to acknowledge and turn from his sins and his wrongdoings. And it's the responsibility of the church to do this, which leads to the second point. Excommunication requires membership. And excommunication, that's, that's not what the Pope does, by the way. It just means to put someone out. And excommunication is what happens when someone will not acknowledge, confess, and repent of their sins. They're put out of the church. And... Uh, and by the way, the only sin that ever leads to this stage of church discipline, there's only one sin that, that leads to this. Do you know what it is? It's a lack of repentance. Refusing to acknowledge the sin, see the sin, and turn from the sin. That's what's in question here. It, it's not the sin itself, whatever the person did to wrong somebody else. It's a sin of unrepentance that leads to church discipline. It's not the sin that's in question, but the response when the person is confronted in that sin. And if somebody refuses to deal with it, 
even when it's brought before the whole church, they're put out. It's a serious thing. We have an example of this, actually, in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it. It says, this is Paul the Apostle. He's writing to the church in Corinth. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you in a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Incest. Verse 2, when you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn over this? No, let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, verse 5, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. A strong language. Hand them over to Satan so that they will, why? Why are they handed over? So that they will renounce and forsake their sin so that they'll say, this sin is as serious as the church told me. They will turn away from it, come back to Christ, and be saved. The goal of all church discipline is restoration. The goal is to remove those who are not genuinely Christian and restore those who have fallen tremendously. And in Corinth, man is sleeping with his stepmother. And far from hiding it, he's boasting about it. And the church, when they find out, they tolerate it. Apparently, it was such a scandal that Paul heard about it even as far away as he was in the city of Rome. And so he deals with it, and, and rightly so. And we see here Matthew 18, 17 in action. Stage 4, remove him from among you. And if you remove him, right, if you're going to take him out of, he has to be a part of first, right? As what's to stop the person being confronted just from saying, I, I'm not a member of this church. I'm not a member of any church. I just come here on Sunday mornings. But if there is a formal and official joining of the church, there can be an official removal from the church. And this, again, it wouldn't have been a problem in the first century. There was only one local church in Corinth. And if you were removed, there was nowhere else to go. I mean, nowadays, you could head down the road, find a group of people meeting on Sunday morning, playing church that will tolerate the sin. It's not a hard thing to do. But at least... The church, in putting you out, would have made a declaration that we do not tolerate immorality. And unless the individual repents of that immorality, the fellowship between the members of this church and the offending person is broken. Now, if you're wondering what happened to this man in 1 Corinthians, he was restored in 2 Corinthians. It says, the punish inflicted upon him by the majority is enough. Restore him so that his soul is not overwhelmed. And the man was formally restored. And don't you see here the forgiveness of Christ? How that, that, that's played out in the church. How slow are we to forgive others? Somebody does something. I don't know if restoring this man committing incest is really what the church should do. Can you imagine that conversation happening? The man's committed this sin. He's been put out. He repents of it. He comes back. He says, I'm sorry. I've stopped. Take me back. Can you imagine in the church? Not inconceivable. Why don't we just put him on the sidelines for a little bit? 
We'll leave him there for Yeah, he's coming back. He's he's asking for forgiveness. Let's let's put him through the ringer first. He wouldn't use that language. They'd use nicer language, but it's not inconceivable, is it? What's he say? He says, You were forgiven for greater things than this. If the man comes back, he's renounced his sin, he's repented of it, he comes back, bring him back. That was the goal of putting him out in the first place. And so he is. He is restored. Anybody who turns from their sin and comes to Christ for mercy finds a place in the church of Christ. Formal church membership is necessary for a formal church discipline. And we're going to go to the next point shortly, but before we do, I do want to say something about church discipline and dealing with sin in the church. The fact that this isn't done like it ought to be. This is one of the main reasons for so much confusion and difficulty in the church today. I mean, what do you do with hypocrites in the church? Isn't that one of the greatest complaints that people have? Church is full of hypocrites. It might be true. It might not be true. But it's a complaint. Why can they say that? Because the church doesn't deal with sin in the church. So what are we to make of a person who lives immorally, breaks every command that Christ gave, and says, I'm a Christian? even if they've been baptized. Is baptism the problem? It's not the problem. So what do you do with somebody who is claiming Christ but runs off on their spouse or abuses their family or cheats in their business or slanders others and gossips or lives in lasciviousness and lewdness? What do you do? All too often, the answer from the church is nothing. And if it's not nothing, it's a slap on the wrist with a single conversation that's never brought up again. And that's fortunate if it's ever even brought up in the first place. And what ends up happening is the church, in the name of grace, becomes a harbor for evil. And Christians, the Lord's sheep, are wounded, they're hurt, people are confused about what it means to be a, a, a Christian. Baptism becomes suspect because it's misunderstood. Christians are hindered from growing in godliness. And worst of all, the name of Christ is mocked among the nations because of hypocrisy and immorality that's not only tolerated but allowed to run rampant in His name. It even hurts new believers, new Christians, because it sets a precedent that makes their profession suspect. And in the early church, it reached a point where people couldn't be baptized for three years and they often had to go through vigorous and grueling vetting and tests. And then if they passed all of these tests, they could be admitted to the church and considered a Christian and have assurance. It just took three years to get there. Is that the way to treat new believers? You, you don't see any of this in the ministry of Christ. Listen, first he gathers, then he separates. First he invites everyone to come to the banquet. He brings them in, then he inspects and sends away the one who's poorly dressed. He gathers on all of the wheat and then separates out the tares. He says the kingdom of God is like a net that draws in fish of every kind. And after they are pulled into the boat, 
The good are kept, the bad are thrown away. Church discipline is the means of doing that. And so you see plainly, he, he invites, Jesus invites everyone who makes a profession of faith and a desire, uh, wants to live for him to come and join and be baptized. Join his body, be members of the church. But then to that body, he says, he is given the responsibility of confronting any member who continues to walk in egregious sin. Then after the confrontation, if they persist in the sin, they're not going to renounce it, submit to correction. If they refuse that, they're to be removed from the membership and removed from the fellowship. And the church says, is saying when it does this, that though you were baptized and walked with us, the fruit of your life and your refusal to repent, of, to forsake the sin, to turn away from it, has cast a shadow on your profession and we can no longer recognize you as a brother or sister in Christ. That's what this stage four of church discipline does. And even this is not outright saying, you're not a Christian. Because the man in Corinth evidently was and he came back. The church discipline is the forge that refines the gold from the dross and separates the sheep from the goats. And church discipline is vital to the health of a church, to the purity of the church, to the witness of the church, and to the health of every individual in the church. I know that there are other issues larger than this, right? Church discipline is not a silver bullet that fixes everything, right? It's, it's, it's not going to fix a church where the Bible isn't believed. It's not going to fix a church where sin is never spoken about. But church discipline is a component of a true church. And maybe you begin to see why I began with the, 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 the disclaimer on how we all despise authority. Because sometimes people hear this and you think, telling me I'm not a Christian? It just rubs them the wrong way and they start to get pretty upset. Church discipline is a good thing that God ordained for the purity and health of His church. So if you're a Christian, if you love Christ, if you love righteousness, if you care about yourself and your soul, do not go to a church that doesn't deal with sin. And, and listen, this isn't calling out everyone for everything. It's not that sin, love overlooks a multitude of sins. But there are sins that become serious threats to the relationships between individuals and serious threats to their, the, the integrity of their families and serious threats to the, the, the church itself. And so this is, in church membership, submitting ourselves to a loving, restoring, compassionate church discipline that overlooks generally the small sins. But when they cannot be overlooked, it is addressed in private conversation and only as a last resort made public. Okay, number three, formal church membership offers some semblance of legal protection. This is a very practical point. You know, I, I know we live in a day and age where it seems laws are becoming increasingly meaningless and freedom of religion uh, I, I don't know if you, you know this, but court precedent in Canada regarding freedom of religion is actually treated as freedom from religion. Right, for example, prayer uh, was happening in a city in Ontario. The, the city council would meet. They would open in prayer. And the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that because of freedom of religion in Canada, they are not allowed to pray before the council meeting. Because everybody else had a freedom to be free from their religion. It's doublespeak. It doesn't make any sense, and God is going to hold courts accountable for censuring of Him. 
but a formal church membership at least gives you some kind of legal foot to stand on, however precarious that may be on account of lawlessness in the land. You say, Corey, what do you mean? Well, when you sign a statement of faith, you are effectively affirming publicly, these are my religious convictions. These are what define my religious beliefs. And religious beliefs are supposedly or supposed to be defended in this nation. They're a right. So what does all of this look like in practice? Let's take the issue of abortion. It's in the headlines today. And the historic biblical Christian position across denominations with very little variation is that abortion is the taking of unborn life. So let me give this an example. Let's say you're a nurse and you have to participate in an abortion. And you know that abortion is the murder of a helpless little child. And so you refuse. Say, I'm not going to have any part of this barbaric practice. I'm not going to sacrifice a child to Moloch. You refuse on religious grounds and your employer threatens you with termination. Now imagine a lawyer takes up your case and it goes to court. And in the courtroom, you offer as your defense a number of select passages that you think clearly show your Bible says life begins at conception and that abortion is a religious wrong. And then to your horror, the expert is called by the prosecution from uh, the United Church of Canada. I only choose the United Church because they officially support abortion in the country. And uh, the member from this church takes those same verses and convincingly twists them until all meaning is wrung out of them completely. And then they confidently assert that you just simply don't understand the Bible that you're quoting. At this point, all you can do is say, you're wrong, or I don't think so, and that's not going to be compelling when the odds are already stacked against you, because even though justice is supposed to be blind, it loves to play favorites. So what can you do? At least, the very least, you can present a document that says, actually, in whatever year it was, I signed this statement of faith and conduct that clearly says how I understand these verses and they are my deeply held religious convictions. And your elders will be able to confirm that they were witnesses with you signing the membership. Now, it won't be perfect. It's not a guarantee, obviously, but it places you on much stronger legal footing. So formal membership can help if a legal situation arises. Four, church membership is submission to the elders of a local body. Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 and 1 Timothy 5.17 say something similar. And uh, listen, I'll speak for all of the elders here when I say that our service to you has been a joy with very few occasions for groaning. But the point here is elders and leaders of the church, universal, 
you're responsible to them. And they have a responsibility towards you. And the reason why this matters for membership is because it answers the question, who are you accountable to? God commands Christians to obey and submit to their leaders, elders in the church, and you want to obey this command, you have to know who the elders are to be obeyed. I mean, is it to one of the hundred or so other pastors in this city? Is it to your favorite preacher or podcast? Is it to someone you listen to online? Are you accountable directly to them? Are you accountable to uh, maybe you read sermons from people who died in the 1800s? Is that who you're accountable to? Or your friend goes to another church and the pastor of this church comes and, 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 and gives you advice. Are you accountable to them? Who are you accountable to? Who knows? Well, membership makes this clear. It allows the command to be faithfully observed who you are accountable to. And you can add to that who we as elders are accountable for. Right? Whose soul am I going to have to answer for before God? Who, who am I and the other elders going to give an account for when we stand before Him? Anyone who walks in the door? Right? Anyone who comes three times a month? What's the threshold? Now, we don't actually ask these questions in our elders' meetings, by the way. Anyone who is in regular attendance, anyone who would reasonably consider themselves a member of Christ Community Church, we care for, we visit, we teach, we pray for, we would rather err on the side of caring for the flock than on the side of neglecting them, obviously. But, but this can create difficult circumstances even for us to navigate sometimes. Like when somebody who was part of a church in, uh, in a town an hour away, they come here, they start to come here, they die. Who does the funeral? Who, who, what do they consider their church? It clears some of those things up. And being part of a local body of believers, submitting to its elders, and this isn't so much to do with formal membership, but it protects you theologically. There is a burden on the leadership of the church to maintain and teach right doctrine. James says, not many of you should be teachers because teachers will undergo a greater judgment. So being submitted to the elders of the church protects you theologically because they will have to answer for what they teach and you will have much less accountability for believing them. Right? There are, when we go to heaven, there are people who are going to go in who believe things that were wrong. And they're going to walk in, no questions asked, and the person who taught them is going to get stopped at the door and say, why did you teach them these things? Or why did you sing these songs? Or why did you recommend these books? Why did you give that counsel? That was bad counsel. Elders are going to be held. Leaders and teachers are going to be held accountable for that. Maybe here's a helpful example. We are told to pay taxes, right? Three times in the New Testament, we're told to give the government what they ask for. Render to Caesar. Pay your taxes. And we know that the government uses that money that we give them to fund horrible, godless atrocities. Like parliamentarian salaries. <laughs> <laughs> they use them for worse things than that. And they boast about it. They do. Does that mean we should stop paying taxes? Well, no matter how much you want a religious exemption, and by the way, it's not a wrong thing to strive as a church for religious exemptions from certain things. I, I think of uh, the Hyde Amendment in the United States in particular, if you know what that is. It's good to strive for those things, but 
the answer is, do you pay your taxes? The answer is yes, we still have to pay them. Jesus commanded, render to Caesar, knowing that this particular tax funded emperor worship. Paul, knowing the Roman authorities, would use those taxes to persecute Christians, still ordered those taxes to be paid. Now, in the judgment seat of Christ, the question you'll be asked is whether or not you paid those taxes, because that's what God required of you. It's what He commanded. That's what you'll be held accountable for. And He will hold the nations accountable and the leaders of the nations accountable for every dollar that they've spent. It's a lot less of a burden on you than it is on them. And in the same way, the church is commanded to obey and submit to the teaching and admonition of their elders, and those elders will be held accountable to a much higher standard than those who listen to them. This goes the other way. If you reject the elders' admonitions, then all of it's on you. You've removed yourself from this kind of protection and added to yourself accountability. Now, this is not a blanket statement, all of this. It's possible to have bad elders. It is possible to have pastors who are disobedient to the Word, to have false teachers who feed on the flock, and people who take too much authority from themselves for themselves because there are limits... Right In the church, there are limits to the authority that people in the church have. Everything has to be traced back to the Word of God. That's where the authority in the church comes from. And so if I'm giving you counsel, I have to be able to show you why this counsel is coming from the Bible, which is my responsibility as an elder. But some people even set themselves up as authorities over Scripture. What do you do then? Well, the answer is, if you're a member of the church, you go to the meeting, you vote them out. There's a mechanism in Scripture for removing tyrannical elders. There is accountability on the elders as well, and it comes from the members of the church. Five. This is important for the fifth point of church membership, which is congregationalism which is much more important than you might think. It's a, it's a form of church government. Now, the church government is not about politics, but how does the church organize itself? Right? What authority does it recognize? Who's in charge? Who owns things? Who makes the decisions? There are three main types of church government today. There, there are a few cultish outliers, too, where all of the authority is centered in one self-styled individual or whatever they want to call themselves. The Bible doesn't recognize any of that. There are three church governments that have been historically accepted, debated, but accepted. And the first is Episcopal. And that means the church is run by bishops, so it's top-down. And the church as an institution, you ever wondered what the difference between denominations is? This is one of them, one of the main ones. The church as an institution owns all of the property, the bank accounts, they own everything. The church as an institution is headed by the appointed bishops. They decide who the ministers are going to be. They decide where they're going to go. They decide what the doctrine is for every church in the denomination. Uh, the Anglican church is an example of this. You say, what's it look like in practice? I can only think of bad examples, but uh, in Washington, D.C., it was a number of years ago now, a church was part of the Episcopal Church in America. It's the Anglican Church in America. And they decided that they were going to leave and when they did, the pastor had to resign his ordination, and the denomination kept the building and the parsonage and the bank account, even though the congregation had 
paid for it all and put the money in. It all belonged to the church, and the bishops decided to withhold it. So that's Episcopal. The second is Presbyterian. And in this polity, it's the elders of churches who are the authority of the denomination. So all of the elders from a given region would make decisions governing the individual congregations in that region. And if something couldn't be decided on at the regional level, they would move up to the, the next level, maybe the provincial or state level. And if it couldn't be decided there, it would be decided yearly at the general assembly. And that decision would affect the direction of the denomination and all of the churches within. So if your church needed a pastor, he would be examined by a group of, of local elders, not from your church, but from all of the churches around. Then he would either be recommended and voted on or denied and, and done away with. And if a church wanted to leave, they'd be voted on whether or not they could leave. And if they were going to make a change to their policy or their doctrine, it would be voted on by the pastors and ordained elders in a region. And if their leaving couldn't be decided there, it would move on to the state level and eventually make it all the way to the General Assembly, to the National Assembly, where every elder in the whole denomination would have a vote. That's Presbyterianism. And lastly, you have what we are, which is Congregationalism. And that means that the congregation, that means that you are the ones who decide all of those things. You decide who is ordained as your pastor. And you are the ones who examine them and vote on the elders. And you are the ones who vote on what to do with the building and the bank account. And who vote on a change of doctrine or policy that affects this local church. And so going back to the tyrannical elder who has the authority to remove him. I mean, imagine you were in an Episcopal church and they said, you, you said, we want him gone. They said, no. He's going to stay. There's nothing you can do about it. Presbyterian church, everyone votes. No, he's going to stay. You don't want him here. Nothing you can do about it. Congregational church, you want him out? You vote? He's out. Well, it's a little more than that. Two or three witnesses propose a letter, send it to the church. Church calls a meeting, and then you vote. Don't get any ideas. <laughs> well, that's why it's called congregationalism. Because it's the congregation, ultimately, that is in charge of the direction and the leadership and the doctrine and the policy of the church. And we believe this to be the biblical model of church government. And formal membership makes it possible to fulfill this conviction. It answers the question, who gets a say? Who gets to decide the course of the church? Someone who comes for a few weeks, someone visiting from another city, someone who's never even been here before but is high up in the denomination, who gets to vote on the budget and the statement of faith of the elders or the lead pastor will preach? Who decides these things? I mean, I think everyone here would be a little bit disturbed if we had a members meeting and 30 people showed up. Genuine believers from a, from a church uh, down the street. People that we love, people that we fellowship with. But, but even then, how would you feel if they showed up and voted on a bunch of proposals? Even if they voted the same way that you would, you wouldn't like it. A formal church membership allows Christ Community Church to govern according to our convictions of congregationalism. The members are accountable for the direction and the leadership of the church. There were other things that I wanted to, uh, to get to, but I think they'll have to wait for another time. Uh, I do want to end with one word of encouragement. Church membership is an official commitment between you 
and your fellow believers. It's a commitment of you to them and they to you. And you say to yourself, well, I can make that commitment without having to do anything formally. Let me tell you why that doesn't work. It doesn't work for the same reason a couple living together isn't married. It doesn't work for the same reason a man and woman, when they're walking uh, alone on a, on a path somewhere, can't look at one another, say, I do, and be married. It's not marriage. It doesn't work that way because it's not just a personal commitment. Marriage is not just a personal commitment. Marriage is a community covenant. And a covenant always has witnesses who hold those members accountable to uphold everything they promise to do. There's not only a sense of, of loyalty, there is a, a guarantee of loyalty. And if, if someone begins to waver, I mean, just think of, the, think of marriage, for example. Two people are joined together by God and joined for life unless separated by death, sexual immorality, or abandonment. But they've sworn fidelity of the greatest possible intensity to one another. They have promised in sickness and in health, riches or poor, better or worse, joy, sorrow, forsaking all others to have one alone until death shall we part. Well, the reason why there is a ceremony is because the whole community is involved. Their family, their friends, everyone invited has... You say, why do we have people invited to weddings? Because everyone who is there has a responsibility to ensure that this new couple keeps their sacred vow. So if the husband's eyes begin to wander, they begin to forget their vows, the wife starts to, to threaten separation, just isn't happy anymore, the groomsmen, the bridesmaids, the parents, the friends, little old aunt you only see once every other year who was sitting in the back, but she was there at your wedding. When they hear of your wavering commitment, they see it begin to happen, that, that the, the covenant you made is in danger, they are obligated to constrain you and to remind you of the solemn oath you made before your spouse, before them, and most importantly, before God. Your marriage, in a way, is their business. It's a business of everyone who witnessed it. And just like a wedding ceremony, a formal public membership is an official covenant between members of the church. And in that covenant, we voluntarily bind ourselves to one another. And it's, it's not burdensome, but only what the Scriptures require of every believer, that we care for one another, care for one another. Everyone in the church promises, I'm going to care for the needs of the person sitting in the pew all the way on the other side of the room from me. We commit that we'll walk together in love, that we will rejoice at one another's joys and mourn at one another's sorrows. That we will admonish and correct one another when the occasion demands it. We commit to pray for one another. Commit to encourage one another onward in the Great Commission. That we will seek together the salvation of our family and of our friends. That we will bear one another's burdens. You ever see someone carrying something really heavy and you think, man, they could use a hand? You, know, you see them on the street and you say, someone should help them. We commit ourselves to carry one another's burdens. Not physically, but spirit. We say, if I see someone carrying a burden, I will go and help them. 
You say someone should help them carry it, you will help them to carry it. You've already made your promise. That we hold one another accountable to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and temptations. As iron sharpens iron, we sharpen one another and encourage one another to press on in the faith. That we care for the ministry of the church, for the poor, and for the advancement of the gospel in the world. All these things we promise to do and a public covenant in membership means we promise to do them all together. And so I want to encourage you, if you have any hesitations or questions, come and speak with me. Even if you're just thinking about joining the church, there are applications out on the back table. Take one with you. Look it over. We've got lots there. Pray about it. It's a gift from God more than most of us probably realize. There is a strength and a joy and a faith assuring that happens when we live in community together. And so I just want to encourage you this morning not to cut yourself off from those blessings, but to make a commitment to the local body of believers for your good and for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would... I would pray that if anybody looks at being a member of a church as if it's not that important or not that big a deal, Lord, I ask that you would show them the weight of it. Lord, that it is not a small thing to join the body of Christ. I pray that you would help them to see the benefit of it, the good of it, that it is a blessing. I pray for anyone with hesitations that they would bring those hesitations forward and that we wouldn't drag our feet on the issue, but that those who call themselves Christians and who consider Christ Community Church their home, that they would join the church to commit to one another in love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.